Well, hey friends, welcome again to Vineyard Altoona. I'm so glad you've joined us again this week. And uh, for those of you who are new, I'm again, uh, want to especially welcome you. Uh, I'm so glad you've chosen to, to take some time and hang out with us here at Vineyard Altoona. Uh, so we're so thankful that you've, you've t- chosen to do that. Uh, we're going to continue this week in a series that we began last week. Uh, it's a series called Off Limits that is done in conjunction with uh, several other area churches, specifically First Church of Christ and the Salvation Army. There's a number of churches around town uh, preaching through this series. And we're so glad to do it with, uh, with those other churches because we certainly do think the church is stronger in this city when we work together. And so this series is, is really focused on looking at areas of our lives where we tend to struggle to surrender things to Jesus. Last week, we talked about this idea of sanctification, and it's just kind of this big word that means it's the process by which you become more like Jesus, where your character gets formed to look more like Jesus. So I began talking about that last week, and especially how, uh, whose job it is. And so what we said last week is that the job of making you look like Jesus belongs to the Holy Spirit, that it's God's job to make you formed into the image of Christ. And yet at the same time, you have a role to play. That part of this is is your responsibility. And that part is that you surrender to Jesus. That as the Holy Spirit calls things out, that that he, he points out to you areas of your life that don't look like Jesus, your job is to say, yes, Lord, you can handle that. Yes, Lord, you can have that. The picture I got this week as I was preparing for this message was one of, of like your antivirus on your computer. You know, uh, if you run a scan on antivirus, it, it takes a look at every part of your computer one at a time. It takes a, a look at every part. And when it comes across part of your computer that's infected or is, is messed up, it pops a little box up in front of you and it says, do you want me to take care of this? And of course, your job is just to click yes. That's all you have to do. You click yes, it takes care of the problem. In the same way, when you give your life to Jesus, the Holy Spirit moves in and he begins to take a look at every area of your life. And when there's part of your life that he recognizes is messed up, it's not quite right, this piece won't look like Jesus. He says, would you like for me to take care of this? And your job as a Christian is just to hand it over. That if he puts his finger on an area of your life, you just give it to him and you surrender it and he will change it and then move on. And so this is really the picture of sanctification that we become, that that we begin to look like Jesus, that we become little images of Christ everywhere we go and that our character reflects the character of God, that this is what we're after. So now we're going to turn from that and we're going to begin to look at what is it that Jesus calls us to surrender? What are the areas of our lives that we don't tend to want to surrender? And I want to begin by just asking you a question. Have you ever lived in a time in your life where people were more angry? I mean, it's, it's everywhere you go, right? People are angry about politics. People are angry about race. People are angry about the police. People are angry about all kinds of things. People are angry about masks. People are angry about COVID. People are angry all over the place. If you look on your social media feed, 
basically what you find on social media is just argument. Everybody's angry. Well, the other thing you find on social media is my jokes. And you're welcome, those of you that enjoy them. If you don't like them, that's what I got for you. But pretty much people are angry, right? This is the way that it looks in our society today. And that there's a philosophy out there that says, well, you have to express your anger, that that's the way that you're going to get through it is you have to express it, you have to vent your anger. And Jesus invites us to a different way. Jesus says that the way forward is to surrender your anger. So I'm calling today's message, Eliminate anger. And so would you pray with me and then we'll get, we'll dig into God's word together. So Holy Spirit, we do invite you to come and God, we ask that you would have your way. Lord, would you speak to us? Would you put your finger on anger that's been hidden in our lives? And Lord, would you help us to surrender? God, would you make us witnesses for you? Would you make us pure? Would you make us holy, God? Lord, I pray that you would enable me to speak as I should, that the words that come out of my mouth would reflect your heart. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to look uh, today at Matthew chapter 5. You can turn there in your Bible. Matthew chapter 5. And this is from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. In chapter 5, he begins what is probably the most famous sermon in history, the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to begin in verse 21. So if you got your Bible, turn to Matthew 5, beginning in verse 21, and here's what we read. It says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be, danger in the, uh, it will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. So as we look at this, and as we look, if you look at any passage in the Sermon on the Mount, one of the most critical things that we have to understand is the context is formed by what comes right before this. To actually understand this part, we actually have to read verse 20. Here's what it says in verse 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. The Pharisees are these, these people who prided themselves on keeping the Ten Commandments, keeping the law. They were perfect, and they wanted everybody to know that they perfectly kept the law. And so as Jesus begins this section of teaching, he says what we said last week. He says, God has always cared about the holiness and the righteousness 
of those people who, who, who call him their father, those who follow him. God has always cared. And then he says, so much does God care that your righteousness has to exceed that of the Pharisees. That you have to be more righteous, more holy than the Pharisees. And probably many of us, much like many of those who were listening to Jesus' sermon, they would go, well, how is that even possible? They're the ones who do it. They're perfect. The problem with the Pharisees wasn't that they did the wrong things. They did the right things. The problem with the Pharisees is they did the right things without having a changed heart. And Jesus' challenge here is that we would do the right things for the right reasons. That we would operate out of changed hearts that result in lives that reflect the character of God. True righteousness is doing the right things for the right reasons. It's living a life of integrity. It's living a life where the inside matches the outside. So much of what Jesus teaches all the way through the Sermon on the Mount really is asking this question. Would you do this if nobody was looking? So he, he talks about praying, he talks about fasting, he talks about giving. And the question always is, would you do this if nobody else knows? Would you do your acts of righteousness if nobody else cared? Does your heart match what you do? And that's the whole, that's the whole call. And in fact, if you understand this, all of Jesus' teaching throughout Scripture will make a whole lot more sense. Not only will we understand the Sermon on the Mount, we'll understand why Jesus is so upset with the Pharisees all the way through Scripture, because he wants you to naturally do the right things out of a transformed heart. It's not necessarily about doing the right things only. It's about doing them for the right reasons. So with that clear, Jesus begins to address uh, the, the, the commandments that the Pharisees are keeping. They're keeping them very well. And he starts with murder in our passage. He says, you have heard it said, that Jesus does this all through the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard it said, do not murder. And then he says, but I tell you, don't be angry. Jesus goes through and he says, yeah, you know the commandment. You know the thing you're not supposed to do or the thing you're supposed to do. Let me tell you what that looks like at a heart level. Jesus says, don't be angry. I mean, murder is a fairly easy one, right? You just don't kill people. You can keep that one. Right now, where you're sitting, you can keep that one. You just don't kill anybody. It's that easy. I mean, there maybe are some commandments that are harder to keep, but not killing someone is fairly simple. Jesus says it's not just about not killing someone. It's about not being angry with someone. What Jesus says is that anger is murder at the heart level. That murder begins as anger in your heart. Now, some of us hear this and we would go, wait a minute, that's not fair. You mean Jesus is going to like judge me based on emotions? I mean, anger is an emotion. That's not fair that I would be guilty based on my emotions. Jesus isn't saying, though, that you're guilty for your emotions. What Jesus is saying is, what makes you guilty is what you do with those emotions. I'll show you how I know, but before I do that, 
quick plug. This is why we talk about faith walking so much. If you have not heard us talk about this, first of all, I don't know how. Secondly, come and talk to us about this. We would love to get you connected with faith walking because it will help you manage emotions appropriately. You'll understand why you feel emotions the way you do and you'll respond appropriately. So Jesus is, is concerned here that we react inappropriately from our emotions. And so he gives us these two statements and they're sort of parallel. Right after he says, don't be angry, he gives us two clarifying statements. Verse 22, take a look at that with me. It says, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Okay, we understand that. And then he continues and he says, again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. That's the first parallel. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. There's the second parallel. Jesus gives us this little litmus test to see if we are guilty or if we are in danger. And he says, if you call someone rocker or you call someone you fool, you can't help it if you feel anger. But what Jesus is saying is the way you can tell is by how you talk about people when you're angry. Now, he uses these words, raka and you fool, but raka really is a word that, that could be translated empty head or idiot or moron. Or, and, and then he says, you fool. These are phrases that show contempt for someone's humanity. What Jesus is saying is, if in your anger, you call people names, if in your anger you degrade people or you treat them as subhuman, we, we treat people with contempt, what Jesus is saying is you're just as guilty as if you murdered them. Even though you didn't physically take their life, with your words you attempted to take their humanity from them. And if you leave this unchecked, if you leave this attitude of contempt for someone's humanity unchecked, it makes it easier and easier to kill them. In fact, every instance of genocide all through history starts by dehumanizing people. If you look back to World War II, the Nazis uh, portrayed in art and film the Jews as subhuman characters, sometimes portraying them as rats. And what ended up happening is, is people looked at Jews not as human beings made in the image of God, but as items of contempt that we can deal with the way we want to. What's so scary, though, is how prevalent this is in our society today. It's all over the place. Think right now about the presidential election campaigns and all that that we're in right now. If you think about it, you probably all have a candidate that you're likely to vote for and one that you're not. And if you were to be completely honest with yourself in a place where you're not guarded, you're not choosing your words carefully, a place where your character might come out. Could you describe the candidate that you wouldn't vote for in a way that doesn't eventually show contempt for their character? That we call, you might call one of them a liar or one of them uh, ignorant or one of them a moron. Could you describe why you wouldn't vote for the other guy without using a word of contempt for their humanity. Could you do that? Could you get through it? And so many of us, I think, 
would struggle to get through a description and express disagreement with policies and procedures and ways of thinking about the opposite candidate without degrading their humanity. This is what Jesus is talking about. But it's not just political candidates. I mean, think about any person of authority in your life that you didn't like or didn't care for or didn't agree with. Think about that boss that you didn't like to work for or who had bad ideas. And how did you describe that person? Think about the pastor of your last church because nobody has any problem with me. But the, Okay, I'm not that stupid, right? But think about how you describe those in authority over you that you don't necessarily agree with. Can you describe them without degrading their humanity? Think about those people that you don't understand. Think about the race of people that you, you're just not familiar with. How do people describe them? Frequently, it's out of fear and we use racial slurs and, and all these ways to describe people that take away their humanity, that rob them of the dignity of being human. You know, we, we got to a place in, in our nation after 9-11 where Muslim people were being referred to as terrorists. The vast majority of Muslims are not terrorists, but if we refer to them as terrorists, it's okay for us to treat them poorly. And as Jesus says, murder them in our hearts. Where is it for you? Let me be completely honest with you. As I sat in my office this week, planning and prepping this message, I found myself weeping uncontrollably, sitting at my desk in repentance before the Father because I need a new heart. And the reality is Jesus points this out and he says, we need a new heart. We're all guilty. None of us can actually do this on our own because our hearts convict us. We find ourselves in a place where we say, Jesus, I need a new heart. I need to have your heart for people. We all find ourselves guilty. Jesus wants us to lay down our anger, that the Holy Spirit would give us a new heart and give us his heart for people. But Jesus isn't just satisfied with you surrendering the anger in your life, that that's not how the kingdom works. It's not just your life. In verse 23, Jesus turns perspectives. If you recall, the very first part was about your life, that you would be guilty if you were angry. But then he turns a little bit and he says that true righteousness involves pursuing an end to anger that anyone would have toward you. Look at verse 23 again. Verse 23 says, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, if they have something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Jesus says that actually the antidote to murder and anger is reconciliation. That where murder permanently breaks fellowship, where anger temporarily breaks fellowship, the response, the way that you, you deal with that is reconciliation. And what Jesus says is, if you have wronged someone in such a way that they may fall into anger and be subject to judgment, if there's a way that you've wronged someone, that your job, 
Your primary job is to go and be reconciled. That nothing else is more important. If you have wronged someone, nothing else is more important than you going and being reconciled. Jesus says it's the most important thing you can do. He says if you're about to do something religious, if you're just about to worship, if you're just about to do your religious thing and you become aware of a place in your life where you have wronged someone else and they may be guilty of anger, stop. Stop right there. Don't offer your religious thing until you've become reconciled. I mean, this is notable. You know, all through this whole book, as we read this whole book, what is so important, what is the, the number one message in this whole book is that worship of the one true God is what we were made to do. That people everywhere were created to worship the one true God. And yet here we get to Jesus saying, don't do that if there's someone who has something against you. In effect, Jesus says it's more important for you to be reconciled than worship. Maybe we let's put it another way. Maybe Jesus says, if you have wronged someone and there's a break in the relationship where they may be angry at you, the only worship God wants from you is reconciliation to that person. It's critical. Jesus doesn't stop at us just not being angry on our own. Jesus says, it's your job to go and be reconciled to someone who may be angry with you. Now, this flies in the face of the way that we handle things in our culture, doesn't it? We live in this individualistic life where people say, well, that's just how I am. And if they don't like it, they can get over it. That's the way people think in our culture nowadays. It's just how I am. Jesus confronts this and he says, if you want to follow me, you pursue reconciliation as the highest priority. And over time, as you pursue more and more reconciliation, this will transform how you interact with people. Let me just press this out a little bit further. If you find yourself in a place where worship just doesn't, it's not as exciting for you anymore, it just doesn't seem to have the life that it once had. Or maybe you find yourself and you say, man, my Bible reading is just dry anymore. Or my prayer life, you know, it just feels dead. Could I suggest to you that perhaps there's a place where you have not gone for reconciliation? Could I suggest that you're trying to offer your religious substitute when God's asking you to be reconciled? And so Jesus would say, go and be reconciled, then come back to your worship songs. Go and be reconciled and then come back to your Bible reading. Go and be reconciled and then come back to your prayer time. Friends, it's that critical. That the highest priority before you ever do anything religious, the most religious thing you could do is go be reconciled. As followers of Jesus, we're never to live lives, uh, our lives of offense and say, well, if they don't like it, they can just go to hell. Because if we don't pursue reconciliation, that's essentially what we're saying. If they don't like it, they can just go to hell. We can't ever be those people. And Jesus says we don't delay in pursuing reconciliation. Look again at verse 25. 
Verse 25 says, settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Jesus tells this story, and what he is saying is that there's a period of time where reconciliation can happen between you and someone you've offended. That there's a period of time where you can make things right. He says, though, that reconciliation is something you have to do before it gets out of hand. That's the whole thing, is that if you can be reconciled on the way to the court, it's not in the hands of a judge. What Jesus is saying is that we pursue reconciliation quickly before it gets out of hand. I know we all like to take this, you're probably just like me. We take this posture where we're like, I might have said something offensive or I might have done something offensive, but ah, I'm a little uncomfortable. And, you know, they, they, they may be mad at me, but they may not be. Maybe they didn't pick it up. So I'm just going to take a wait and see posture. But here's the problem with anger. Anger, if it's not addressed, just grows. It just grows. If something, just, I mean, think about it in your own life. You've had these situations where somebody did something and it offended you or it annoyed you. But, you know, if it's not too big, you probably just brushed it off. And then they did it again and you brushed it off again and they did it a third time and you brushed it off again. But every time it didn't just go away, it just builds. It just grows. And so then they do it again and now you go talk to other people about how upset you are. Of course, that doesn't fix the problem. And so your anger just builds until they do it again and you finally explode. And you blow up on them. This is what happens with anger. It, anger doesn't go away if it's unaddressed. It has to be addressed. So even though we would rather just wait and see if, if the person says something about the way we've wronged them, the Jesus posture is if there's any thought that we may have wronged them, we go pursue reconciliation. Friends, there's people in your lives who you have annoyed or offended. If you don't know that, here's news. You have offended people. You have annoyed people. And it's not enough to just hope that they never say anything. Or hope maybe if they're actually upset, they will tell you. Jesus says you pursue it quickly. Jesus says there's a point at which the consequences get out of control. They're no longer in your hands. For those of us who follow Jesus, we pursue reconciliation quickly out of love for our brother. Jesus says if you're angry, you are in danger of judgment. Why would we heap that on our brother when we could just go pursue reconciliation? Friends, we begin by eliminating anger in our own lives. But we don't just stop there. To follow Jesus is to pursue and eliminate anger everywhere. We do so by actively pursuing reconciliation, just like our Savior Jesus actively pursued reconciliation with us, and he gave his life for it. Will you do that? Will you pursue reconciliation the way Jesus pursues reconciliation?